Welcome to the Being Known Podcast with my friend, Dr. Kurt Thompson. And my friend, Pepper Sweeney. And we are here to explore and discover what it means to be truly known. On today's podcast, well, there's no easy way to say this. <laughs> We're going to be talking about neuroplasticity. And the reason it's not easy is because it's a six-syllable word. That is six syllables. It I is. Don't, I don't use six syllables that often. I'm around no, the I, four or five range. You know, I can hang there right. pretty good. You get into yeah. six, seven, and eight, and I get a little tongue-tied. That's, that's high octane. And for me, like, I, I barely have six syllables in a sentence. So, I mean, oh, please, <laughs> please. You have more syllables than <laughs> I mean, this. You are the, you are the, I, you know, I wish I had a long, bombastic, multi-syllable, <laughs> what is it? Multi, how do you say that? See, I can't. Multi-syllable-astic <laughs> word <laughs> that would describe your vocabulary. My bombast. Yes. <laughs> your bombast. Oh, my gracious. <laughs> No, but okay, in all seriousness, Kurt, I think maybe start us off with um, what, uh, start us off with just a definition. Yeah, yeah. And again, in in the spirit of being known, again, I'd be, even as we go into this definition of this word neuroplasticity, we want to bear in mind that it's, we're talking about this particular piece of neuroscience because it really does help us better understand what it means to be known and how the process of being known actually has the capacity to not just change our minds, but to renew our minds. And we'll learn how neuroplasticity is the topic that we, uh, that we turn to when it comes to uh, the way we will want our minds to be renewed and transformed. So the definition of this word, neuroplasticity, it has to do with, literally, the plastic nature of neurons, right? So neuroplasticity. And by plastic, we mean that they, that, that when in, in science, when we talk about something's plasticity, we're really talking about something's almost elasticity, its capacity to be flexible and adaptive, its capacity to make changes. When I was in medical school, now 35 years ago, I remember doing work on in, in the VA hospital with folks, you know, men and women who'd had strokes. And at the time, if you had a stroke, the, the basic way that you were cared for was that you were probably in the hospital for about six weeks and you might get some physical therapy and or occupational therapy a couple of times a day. And then you were sent home after six weeks, but there wasn't a lot of anticipated change beyond that because it was well understood at the time that unlike skin cells, Unlike other cells in the body that reproduce pretty easily and pretty quickly when wounded or damaged or injured, it was understood that neurons, the brain cells, and, the, and or cells of your nervous system, so those not just cells in your brain, but cells throughout your body that innervate your hands and legs and your gut lining and everything, that if those cells were injured or killed, that there would be no way for them to be repaired. Or if they did, the repair was very minimal at best. And so there wasn't a lot of hope for people who had strokes. And what began to happen about 20 to 25 years ago is that there was some really interesting research that began to emerge regarding the capacity of neurons to grow under certain conditions. And this expanded into our ability to recognize that actually under certain conditions, neurons in the brain that were damaged, and this was particular, of course, for patients who had strokes, neurons in the brain actually had far greater capacity to reorganize and to grow again and to renew than we ever had thought. And we've come to find out that, in fact, 
neurons do have the capacity to grow and renew in three particular ways. So this capacity for neuroplasticity, capacity for a brain to grow again in the face of damage, especially in stroke patients, meant that whereas 35 years ago after six weeks you were sent home, now if you have a stroke, we will send you to a rehabilitation center where for probably maybe up to several months you will be in that center and 10 hours a day you will be working to exercise your hand, your leg, You will be working to exercise, exercise, work, 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 because we know that the more we practice, the better we become. The more neurons are recruited, the more able they are to then do some of the work that neurons that were killed off used to do. There's a very interesting experiment that was done with a group of college students in which they were, the the researchers wanted to check to see the adaptability of the brain to change its function. And so they did this really interesting experiment where the college students were blindfolded and they had to remain blindfolded for a number of days in a row. In this case, it was a week. And if you've never had to be without sight for, you know, any any period of time, like being blindfolded for a week is a long, long time for this to happen. So Many of our listeners may be aware that the large portion of the neurons, those brain cells that are at the back of our brain in the occipital lobe, they are largely committed to taking in all the information that we get from our vision center. So light comes in to the front of the eye, goes to the back of the eye, to the retina, and it runs from the retina through the optic nerve. And the optic nerves come to the middle of the brain where they cross over one another. And from there, they travel further up through the back of the brain where all those signals that are coming in and hit the retina, are they fan out to the back of the brain. And from the back of the brain, those signals are then reorganized, sent down to the lower parts of the brain, and then come up into the prefrontal cortex part of your mind, of your brain, in which your brain then reconstructs and says, oh, I see this landscape. But all that work of reorganization, most of that takes place in the back of the brain, in the occipital lobe, so much so that we think about it as being the visual center. That's what we call it, the visual center, because that is the part of the brain that takes up all of that hierarchy, all that architecture, taking in light and making sense of it. These college students were blindfolded, and as such, there was no light coming in. But instead, in order for them to get around, how would they get around? Well, they have to get around by feeling their way. They get around by feeling their way, right? So they're imagining in their mind, but they can only see with the tips of their fingers because they're having to feel their way out of their bed and into the kitchen, to the shower. Everywhere they're going, they're using their hands. And Pepper, after only one week, the brain scans that were done indicated that even only after one week, the brain cells in the occipital lobes of these students in the back of their brain that once were brain cells that were receiving input only from the eye are now all receiving input from the fingertips. And that quickly those cells in the back of the brain that we think are just simply like their vision centers, right? That's all they do. Their job is to just process what comes to them from the eye. No, they can adapt. And the brain beautifully finds a way to move the input that's coming from the eye. Now we're going to take it in from the fingertips. And that's only after seven days. And what's so marvelous about this is that it really indicates, oh my goodness, we can recruit brain cells that used to do one thing, and now we can recruit them to do other things as long as we practice over and over. And of course, with this situation, that's all they had. All they had were their fingertips to get around, and they're going to have to map that out. And so we're finding that certain cells that have been even killed off in a stroke have cells that are right next door to them. 
that weren't killed off and that didn't do the things that the cells that their you know those neighbor cells that were killed off did but if you just get enough of a signal to start to recruit those other cells that were living next door you can get them to flexibly adapt to start to do something that they never did before and this is what we mean by the brain's capacity, the neurons, the brain cells, their capacity to flexibly change and do something new and different. As I said earlier, there are three ways in which those brain cells can change. One, they can change by actually growing new neurons. We can actually help and coax the brain to grow neurons in new ways that heretofore didn't even exist. And one thing in particular where that's significant is that we can especially help neurons grow in what we call the prefrontal cortex, the part of our brain that is planning, that imagines the future. We can get them to grow in what we call the hippocampus. And the hippocampus is a small section of tissue in the center of the brain there's a piece on the right and a piece on the left, side, you know, pieces of tissue. And what's important about the hippocampus is it's involved in lots of things, but one of the most important things is its involvement in short-term memory acquisition. And as we'll talk about later in one of our podcasts, when we talk about memory, as we said earlier in our conversation about emotion, what I pay attention to is what I remember. And if I can pay attention to something new, that I've never had to pay attention to or never had the opportunity to pay attention to again, I can actually increase the growth of new neurons that represent that new experience in that hippocampal region. And so growing new neurons is one way that we do it. Another way is that neurons actually can grow in size. And so whereas a certain section of neurons that were really kind of underutilized before now can become more effectively utilized. So let's say that I have a certain set of neurons that their job, if I were ever to receive empathy from someone, their job would be to light up and turn on in response to someone's empathic connection with me. But if I haven't had much practice with empathy, they haven't had much action. They haven't had much practice. But if I tell you a story about my life, a story where perhaps before I've carried a lot of shame or grief, and in you, which as I've said before, I, I actually have met in you a person of great empathy and connection with me, that very action activates neurons in my brain that have not been activated before. And when they turn on, the more that they are turned on, the more they actually grow. And they grow in two ways. They, grow, they can grow in length, but they can also grow in diameter. And for our listeners, they might think like, why do I got to know about, like, what's that got to do with anything? Well, neurons, certain neurons in, in the central nervous system are covered in this protein sheath, this covering. It's called myelin. And myelin is important because it both protects neurons, but it also enables neurons to fire more efficiently. This is where some physics laws come into play. If you take a copper wire and you enlarge the diameter of the wire, it makes the wire more efficiently able to transmit electrons down the wire. The bigger the diameter, the faster the electrons move. It's a similar kind of electrochemical process with neurons. The larger the diameter of the neuron, the more flexibly and adaptively that neuron can fire, turning on and off. And every time a neuron fires, that a neuron that has myelin wrapped around it, if that neuron fires, the myelin begins to grow and wrap itself more and more and more thickly around the neuron. And so the more it fires the more easily it fires. Those neurons that fire together, wire together, as Donald Hebb, a famous Canadian neuropsychologist, termed this Hebb's axiom, this notion that the more we practice firing these neurons, the more efficiently they fire. So they can grow by 
increasing their just sheer number, we can grow new neurons. We can secondly grow their size, both in length, but also in diameter and their proficiency. And thirdly, we can grow them in greater connection, one with the other. So we've talked here before about this notion that we name things to tame things. That if I have a particular emotion and I put words to that emotion, and I not only put words to it myself, but I put words to it in your presence, and I see you seeing me as I say, when this happened, I felt great sadness, and you say, man, I really get that. You are enabling neurons in my brain, literally, to connect with each other, the neurons that have to do with what I'm feeling, connecting to the neurons that have to do with like how I'm actually saying what I'm feeling, with the neurons that represent my experience of feeling felt by you that changes the nature of my experience, not only of the feeling, but of the entire story that I'm telling you because I'm connecting with you in that process. And so in this way, our interpersonal interaction is helping, helping literally to thicken the connection of these neurons in my brain between multiple different parts of my brain are coming together in the convergence of our interpersonal relational interaction. All of this represents neuroplastic change. And this neuroplasticity is one of the great developments in all of science, let alone neuroscience, in the last 30 years. Because it really is a message of hope. It really tells us that we do not have to be left not only just with our stroke responses, but we don't have to be left with the stories that we tell ourselves about ourselves. Our stories, our narratives can be renewed and our brains are being transformed at the same time. I was writing that down. <laughs> hmm. I mean, it's, yeah. it's really amazing to hear that actual changes are happening in the brain because of connection mm-hmm. that we have with other people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. And these are changes that, that, again, that for as long as we've been studying neurology... For many, many years, we didn't think that they were possible. And these things that neuroscience are revealing in terms of the mechanics of what the brain is capable of reflect things like that we read in the scriptures where St. Paul writes, Therefore, by the mercies of God, I beseech you, by the mercies of God, present your bodies a living sacrifice. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, such that you may know what the good and perfect will of God is. I think it's so striking that St. Paul says, first of all, by the mercies of God, I beseech you, by the mercies of God, present your bodies a living sacrifice. He doesn't say present your thoughts. He doesn't say present your religion. He says, present your bodies, recognizing, again, that even though he's not a neuroscientist, he's describing what it means for us, for our minds to be embodied and relational processes. That for me to present my body is to tell my story in a physical presence with someone who will see me in this physical presence. And so doing, we who believe in a Trinitarian God, we who believe in the presence and activity and vitality of the Holy Spirit, we would say that when you and I, Pepper, are talking that the Holy Spirit is in the room, Jesus says, where two or more of you are gathered, I'm in the room. The question is whether or not you're paying attention. And if he's in the room and the Holy Spirit is interceding between the two of us, he literally is enabling us to present our physical presences, if you will, to each other, 
present yourselves a living sacrifice, and that sacrificial offering is one in which I want to reveal to you. I want to be sacrificial in revealing to you the truth about who I am. I'm going to tell you my story. And in the course of that, and I am seen by you, I feel felt by you, and at the same time, you may also say things, you may also ask me hard questions. You may, you know, do any number of things that a good friend would do, including say, you know, Kurt, I'm really wondering what you're thinking about, like why you keep holding that grudge. Like, like you, you, you sound pretty angry and you sound like you're enjoying it. And you're going to ask me that question and that's going to be a way in which God is using you to correct me, for instance. But in so doing... It literally gives my brain the opportunity for new neural connections to take place. Because if I've been harboring that anger, that resentment in my head, part of why I'm doing that is because I still feel the grief of the sting of whoever it was that hurt me in that relationship of, you know, in which I'm holding my grudge. And I don't feel very well felt about the pain that I have. But if you also say, so tell me more. What, tell me more about what's behind that. Like you sound pretty resentful. I say, like, you're, you're darn right I am. And you say, well, tell me more about that. Well, what if I haven't had anybody ask me that question? Well, now I've got to go revisit and touch those neural networks that represent that resentment, that anger, that hurt that I've been harboring in its closet in my you know, heart's home for all these many days, months, weeks, years. But now you are inviting me into that space. And in so doing, you are quite literally allowing my brain to change. Because I'm not going into that space by myself. I'm going into that space and you're coming with me. And when I tell you that story, those neurons that represent my sorrow, my anger, and my resentment, I'm articulating that story, listening to, uh, while you listen to me, and I'm seeing you see me, and there's the part of me that's a little afraid that when you hear this, you're going to think, well, Kurt, you're not nearly the guy that I thought you were, because like you've been harboring this resentment against this guy. And yet, that's not what I see. That's not what I hear. I hear a person who's inquisitive. I hear a person who's curious. I hear a person who's not coming with condemnation, but who's also coming for me in my resentment in order for that to be healed and in order for me to repent, as it were. But when we think about this on the plane of neurons, on the plane of brain cells, all of that activity is brand new to my experience. You... My brother, you are recruiting neurons in my brain to come to a place where they can start to talk to other neurons in my brain, and I could not do that if you weren't inviting them to the party. And when that happens, I find myself now experiencing those feelings, but in your presence, and the very act of that taking place means that the Holy Spirit is in between you and me. In some respects, you know, there is this word called a synapse. A synapse is the space that exists between two neurons. It's that little river that runs between two neurons where a neuron has to talk to another neuron from one to another, and it has to cross over into that very, very small space. And we would say that the Holy Spirit occupies that synaptic relational space between you and me and is helping to the bring that you and me together and in so doing is literally transforming my mind. When St. Paul says don't be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, look, I don't I'm guessing St. Paul didn't know a thing about neurons. But if he were here, I have no doubt that he would say, well of course this is exactly what I'm talking about. This is exactly what God does. When he like this is not just metaphor. This is embodied. I, I beseech you, present your bodies. This is embodied transformation, and this is what the gospel is all about. And as we uh, go about transforming our minds, um, 
we can literally change things. Uh, like you said about your story uh, that you tell yourself and those things. Um, but with all of this practice that we've been talking about throughout the podcast, it requires work. And I'm sure that um, this is something that needs to be done repeatedly to see real change. Right. Right. One of the primary lessons that we've learned about this is that there are a number of rules of engagement for neuroplastic change to take place. And one of the first ones that we learn is that we have to practice over and over and over and over again. There's a general rule of thumb that goes something like this, that neurons grow about one millimeter per month on their own. If there's been an injury, they'll grow about one millimeter per month. There are some things that we can do to enhance that speed. When people hear that from me, like one millimeter per month, they're like, dang, that's a long time. Like, how are we going to get like, it feels kind of overwhelming. It feels kind of discouraging to think I'm only moving one millimeter per month, but recognizing that one millimeter per month, but you've got a hundred billion neurons in your head. You have a lot of neurons that are all doing this together. And as we'll talk about in just a few moments, there are some things that we can do to enhance this. But the most important thing for us to remember is that practicing small acts of neuroplastic change multiple times is a far more robust way of enhancing neuroplastic change than if I practice practice it one time for a short period of, you know, infrequently. So for instance, if I want to learn to play the piano, it's far better for me to practice 15 minutes, six days a week, than it is for me to practice for three hours, one day a week. It's far better for me to practice for short periods of time, much more frequently, than it is for long periods of time, much less frequently. And so when it comes to anything that we're doing, the more I do it, even for short periods of time, as we'll get to when we talk about mindfulness practices and meditation and so forth, you know, people will say when I give them mindfulness practices, like, well, how often should I do this? And I say, like, look, even if you do it for three to five minutes once a day, it's better than trying to do it for 30 minutes or an hour once a week. Because the more you do it, the more signal, the more frequently the signal is going to be sent to those neurons, inviting them to the table to be different than what they were before yesterday. And with every practice, you make that signal stronger. Every practice, we make that signal stronger. And one of the things that we're trying to do with this practicing is we have an acronym in our, in our work in interpersonal neurobiology, and the acronym is SNAG. S-N-A-G. For transformation, for moving from depression or anxiety, panic, obsessive-compulsive disorder, mood dysregulation, moving from there to human flourishing, our troubled marriage, moving from there to flourishing, our difficult parenting, from there to flourishing, what we're really trying to do is to stimulate neuronal activation and growth. S-N-A-G. We are trying to snag the brain. In our last podcast, we talked about emotion. And we talked about how emotion is such a crucial part of how we pay attention to things. That we pay attention to things that are emotionally salient, emotionally significant. And it is those things then that we turn our attention to that we can practice. The more I turn, the more I practice turning my attention to certain things, the more I'm stimulating this neuronal activation and growth and moving the transformative process of my mind in the direction of human flourishing. And so when we have people who come to our practice, and in many of our listeners, we might be thinking, gosh, I've been depressed for 30 years, and I can only imagine a life in which that's the way I'll be. I just need to learn how to cope with it. Or I'm just anxious all the time. My mother was anxious. I'm anxious. My adult kids are anxious. I just need some medicine in order to help me, like, just keep me from being much more anxious. There's a lot of times when we can feel stuck 
in our stories. We feel stuck in our life, in our symptoms. And we are often in those places because we have been practicing being in those places. Without knowing it, we have neuroplastically formed patterns that every time we practice it becomes that much easier for us to be in that pattern. And so in this way, I tell people, you know, neurons work kind of like it would work if you were to be journeying for the first time and you come to the edge of a forest and you have to somehow get to where you want to get through, through the forest, you might make your way there. And then someone else comes behind you and they would might follow you and they would make their way there. And before you know it, this path that was first bushwhacked by you now becomes a footpath. <clears throat> and of course, other people who come are just going to go on that footpath. They're not going to just decide, like, I want to cut a new path. I'm going to a footpath. And the more and more, and, and, and like a hundred years later, there's a highway there. That highway could have been someplace else, but we're not necessarily going to just cut a new path through the woods because the path that is already being trod is the one that's just much more easily to be trod once again and again and again and again. And here we see this rule, this Hebb's axiom, those neurons that fire together, wire together. And what does that mean? It means that the more I practice firing certain neurons, the easier it will be for me to practice firing that neuron path. And another implication of this is that once that pathway is formed, once I go start down that path, it's very difficult for me to not complete the pathway. So if I have grown up in a house where... Uh, I'll just say this. So I, I grew up in a house where um, I had I had two parents who loved me, who loved my brothers, who loved each other, who loved God. Uh, but, you know, they were far from perfect. Uh, and I, uh, I deeply respect my parents. I, I, you know, anything that is good about my life, there are many good things about my life. And I can, I, I can say that uh, my parents are... Uh, our primary reason for why those good things are true about who I am. And so I thank God for that. And I'm also aware that my parents uh, had their own imperfections. And for instance, for my, as far as my dad was concerned, you know, we lived in a house where, you know, the rule of thumb, I think this is true for anybody who grew up in Ohio. Um, one of his, uh, maybe his, you know, single most popular parenting tool was if I were to, if, if, if his kids got upset in his presence, about something that had to do with him, he would bring out this particular tool and apply it, and that was, you quit your crying, or I'm going to give you something to cry about. Now, my dad was not an angry guy. He wasn't. He was not a rageaholic, none of that. But one of the things that I learned later in life was, oh, the reason he wasn't angry was because we're all working really, really hard not to piss him off. And what did that mean for me? That meant that I grew up in my house being afraid of anger. I didn't know that. But what it would mean would be anytime I would sense or feel anger, I would immediately find ways to suppress it. And so for me, the neuroplastic pathway, the neurons that were firing together and wiring together, were as soon as I would sense anger, automatically I'm suppressing that and having to find a different way to cope with that and assuming that like anger is it, it feels threatening like I, if I feel it in my body there's a certain threat to this that I, that I feel and then of course you know you go and do things like get married and you discover that like your wife can get angry with you and like, there's no way from there's no place for me to go. Like, I, I I I can't I can't get away from this. And she's pretty comfortable with anger, which is a problem. And it also, you know, she's not someone who understood anger to be a problem. She didn't understand it to be a threat, something that you feel. And so, 
I would feel things. I would feel I would be even angry at her, but I would I couldn't say it because my my worry was that to express anger would lead to something catastrophic, even though I'm not thinking this. Like my neurons are automatically working in this way. And it's not until years into our marriage, and then also my doing work with my spiritual director, and then with my friendships. And then in other relationships in which I have, and and, and to this day, I'm 58, and I'm still coming to terms with how much anger I walk around with. My, all my, all, all the, all the folks from my family of origin are now deceased. My oldest, I've, I've lost three brothers to cancer, and the last one died just a couple of years ago. And, uh, it's, it's funny, you know, um, Pepper, the things that we are allowed to talk about once certain people are dead. And interestingly enough, my neuroplastic architecture would be such that certain things I would not be able to say comfortably in the presence of certain people in my family. But once they're all dead, certain things start to get named, including just how angry I was about a lot of things. Angry at my parents, angry at my brothers, angry, like, like, like I'm just, I'm just a gathering storm of rage. Now, I'm not, you know, I'm not throwing glasses around the kitchen. I'm not expressing it in this way. I'm, I'm not, but I just became aware, like, oh my gosh, like I've been angry for 50 years in small ways, small collected ways that I've never been able to express. And so collectively, it feels big. All in this neuroplastic architecture. And it is in the process of relationships that enable me to then begin to name anger, even though it's uncomfortable, and begin to have my mind and my brain transformed in the process so that I'm not having to walk around burning energy containing all that. And that energy is then made more available to me to do other things like have a podcast with you. Okay, so what? let's talk about these practices. Um, you know, and I, whether or not you want to use yourself as an illustration here, but you know, how do you how do you put in place the practices that you know that that deal with this anger? You know, you just you, you named it, um, you've talked mm-hmm. about it, and and you know, then what? I mean, it's it's yeah, yeah, yeah. So there are there are some things that we can do that can enhance this neuroplastic change and uh some of them are going to seem pretty obvious to us um although we wouldn't necessarily um connect them to you know flexibly getting our brain our brain cells to change their activity so one of these is um it's it's really important we learn that aerobic exercise of even the smallest amount going for a walk aerobic exercise helps enhance neuroplasticity, you will talk to a lot of people who will talk about when they go out for walks, they have all kinds of ideas that hit them, that don't hit them when they're sitting still. So aerobic exercise, again, and you don't have to be a marathon runner. You can just go out for walks. That kind of movement actually enhances the capacity of your brain to change. That's number one. Number two, diet. And by diet, I don't mean like losing weight or having the right diet. I mean especially this. Especially in America, we eat far too much and we eat far too quickly. And so one of the first things that I tell patients is, and well, I first tell them, do as I say, not as I do. That's the first <laughs> rule of thumb, right? The first neuroplastic rule of thumb is do what Kurt says, but not what Kurt does, right? is I would really like for you to plan on making sure that you take no less than 30 minutes to eat any meal. Oh, I'm so guilty of this. Every day, you know, my lunch is, uh, I, I go in, leave the office, go in the kitchen, and I eat standing up. In t- I literally give myself 10 minutes to make it and eat it. It's awful. Yeah, I do too. Yeah, I do, I do too. It's, it, it's unfortunate. One of the things, though, that it does, if we slow that pace down, is that it actually allows us to sit in a space of awareness that allows my brain to catch up with itself, as it were. I can notice where I am. I can pay attention to things. I give my brain the opportunity for brain cells to begin to connect in ways 
that they're unable to connect if I'm moving at light speed, which I usually am during my lunch or during my breakfast. There's another element of this, and that is that meals are not just about getting calories in. Meals are about connection with people. And how many of us, uh, you know, in the course of our day, are practicing, yeah, I eat my lunch at my desk while I'm on my computer doing my work. Food is just a thing, like, you could just, like, strap an IV to me and put in nutrients. Like, I don't, you know, no, food was meant to draw us together. So aerobic exercise, diet, sleep. Now, we, on average, sleep probably about two hours per night less than we did 100 years ago. Now, two hours per night for a night or two is not that big of a deal, but if you multiply how many hours that adds up to over the course of a person's adult lifetime, it's a lot of sleep lost, which means there's a lot of rest that my body is not getting. And it also means that with less effective sleep, I'm more prone to the development of dementia as I age. Because we don't get enough sleep, we don't give our bodies the opportunity to clean out the waste products that our brains are creating every day during our waking hours. So there's exercise, there's, there's diet, there's sleep. The next thing is, that's really important is creativity. If we are willing, this gets back to our conversation about beauty, our encounter with creativity... When I create, and again, we don't have to be professional artists, but anytime I'm actually asking my brain to create something, I'm actually asking it to stretch into an area of novelty. So creative novelty. Asking my brain to enter into creative novelty. And, and, this, and this could be reading poetry. This could be, but more further, like I'll never forget our conversation where you... Uh, you recited your uh, Wendell Berry poem that you had memorized, memorizing poetry, memorizing scriptural texts. And again, not just for the sake of memorizing, like you're like trying to memorize a list of numbers. You're really trying to take these things in and allow them to become part of you. In so doing, bear this in mind, I might have heard the 23rd Psalm. I'm familiar with the 23rd Psalm. If you were to start to read it, I might even be able to recite it with you as you're But for me to memorize it requires that I'm imaging a brook, imaging a table set before me. There's all kinds of ways in which I'm asking things of my brain that it heretofore hasn't had to do. I'm basically taking it to the weight room. If I'm going to learn to paint, if I'm going to learn a new, a new foreign language, if I'm going to learn uh, to play the piano, all these creative acts... If I'm going to have encounters with nature, if I'm going to have run-ins with beauty, as it were, I am asking my brain to expand its awareness and receptivity to things while I'm also having to work at things that takes my brain to the weight room. The next thing that's really important is the notion of mindfulness practices. So this is mindfulness meditation. Uh, you know, one text that I give people now, you know, there, there are a lot of uh, really, really lovely books um, that speak of the Christian tradition of meditation and the contemplative tradition that, that out of which that comes. And one of the most helpful ones that I've read is a book called Into the Silent Land by the author Martin Laird. L-A-I-R-D. He, uh, for some time, was a professor at Villanova University and also has a specialty in Gregory of Nyssa. And so for our, our listeners who are aware of patristics and church fathers and so forth, this is a guy that you would really want to read. But he wrote this book, Into the Silent Land. I, I tell people, look, it's, it's a sh it, not only is it not very many pages, but it's a small book. You'll read it in a so day. So it's accessible. Like you I, use it. I, yeah, yeah, it's very accessible. You're, yeah, Do, no, you I've not read it. I've, I've not. I've, I've just wrote it down. I'm going to get it. Yeah, you'll read it in a day, and you'll use it for the rest of your life. Oh, awesome! Because it is clear, it is concise, and it is practical about what does it mean for us to hold our breath, for us to pay attention to our breath, for us to draw our attention into a space where we're like re re repeatedly drawing it back to our breath, even though it wanders off. This practice of bringing our attention to Jesus and to the center of our souls 
strengthens my hippocampus, blossoming new neural connections in my brain. Another one that is really important, and especially in, as we're recording this in the, in the middle of this COVID pandemic, uh, is the experience of humor. Um, you know, I, I, we, we've said this before, Pep, um, like part of why I enjoy so much our relationship is that I, I mean, I'm, I'm guaranteed to be having some kind of disruptive pain in my stomach because I'm laughing so hard before any interaction with you is over. It's so fun. And humor, as it turns out, as we think about it, to actually allow ourselves to laugh is an act of great vulnerability. And I'm actually expanding my brain's capacity to be connected to another person by being in that space of vulnerability. And so humor also, a regular encounter with humor is a way for us to expand our neuroplastic change. Another one, uh, we've got two more. One is the practice of deep reading. Of what are you saying? Deep? Deep, deep reading. reading. Deep, like, by reading deeply. And it is what it sounds like. Now, it's, it is likely that War and Peace, for instance, would never be published now. Because who would read a 1,200-page book? The point is that when we read good literature, especially literature that takes time for us to get through the book, we are having to think about multiple threads of themes, multiple characters. We're having to use our imagination, and we're having to do it, as we might even say, reading in a long obedience in the same direction. We're having to do this for an extended period of time, and that exercises neural networks in ways that really don't let up on that. Now, this doesn't mean that, you have, that it has to be war and peace, but it means Deep reading, both of, now, again, you don't have to go find a chemistry textbook to read, but it doesn't just have to be novels. It could be deep reading of important, significant things. You know, one of, as, as a writer, I'm, I'm told these days, you know, Kurt, you just can't afford to be writing 400-page books because nobody's going to read it. You want to, you know, keep, keep your reader's attention, so make sure that your book is around 100 pages, maybe a little more. And I'm like, okay, but, like, it's not asking readers of very much. And we sacrifice capacity for neuroplastic strengthening by not being willing to do that. Now, this doesn't mean that you, like, read War and Peace in a day or in a week. If it took you a year to get through it, that's fine. But staying with it regularly, reading several pages a day, staying with that, again, gets back to that question of practicing multiple things for short periods of time, rather than feeling like you got to have the burden of eating the whole meal all at once, but less frequently. So the last thing that we come to that our, reader, our, our, our listeners will, I think, not be surprised at is that the deep connection of interpersonal relationships is the primary way in which neuroplastic change takes place. When I feel felt by you, when I feel seen by you, like we were talking earlier, it is our interaction that turns things on in my mind in ways that otherwise would never come to be. This notion that I can be known, the very act of being known leads me to the transformation of my mind. I can do all these other things. I sleep by myself. I don't want to necessarily eat a meal by myself. I would love to exercise with others. All these other things that we can do when we do them with other people enhances the process even that much more. And so those are a few of the concrete things that we can begin to put into practice that can open our minds to greater flexibility in order to move us to being more deeply known and therefore more like our God who we long to image in our daily lives. 
Yeah, I was just thinking about those last two, the, the deep reading and uh, interpersonal relationships. I've found a way in the last few years to sort of connect those two, which has been a lot of fun. Um, have a couple of guys, we, we dare to call it a book club, um, but we, uh, we challenge one another and we've read Faulkner and we've read Homer and we've read, you know, so many different things. And then we, we, um, we get together a couple times throughout the book and um, and we we talk about it and we you know it leads us to talking about what we felt about it and you know it's mm. it's um, it's intentional time but it's so fun and mm-hmm. uh, and enriching yeah. um, there are yeah. areas here I obviously you know need to work on as practices the diet thing is one for sure uh, it's interesting you know we talk about doing it with others I um, as far as aerobic exercise, I would much rather do it with people than do it by myself. It just is, you know, right. um, drives me right. so much more, um, right. creativity. Um, you know, I, I think there's probably ways that I can add not more novelty to that, you know, um, that, right. I, that I need to work yeah. on. Uh, yeah. mindfulness practice is definitely something I'm going to get the layered book. There's definitely, uh, an area that I need some growth in for sure. It's, um, uh, yeah, <clears throat> that's a, that's a spot for me. Humor is, yeah. you know, one of my absolute favorite things. And I love this thing that you said about it being a great place of vulnerability. I, I, I don't think I've ever made that mm-hmm. connection before. Um, and it really is. I, recently I was challenged to look through, um, in one of Ber- in Brene's Brown, Brene Brown's book, her, her set of values where she has like a hundred, hundred things listed. I may have mentioned this to you just like a hundred things listed hmm. words and um i had originally had um uh, f- you know you have to narrow it down to two is the exercise and i had had uh a sense of belonging and something else's and and i don't know whether it's because of this time that we're in or what but i i my two i've come to are humor and grace is where i'm at right now those are the two things that mm-hmm. I really hold mm-hmm. valuable right now. But anyway, that's mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. this list is mm-hmm. great. Sleep, I've mm-hmm. I've got to mm-hmm. work on. What's the what is uh, what would you say is is different for everybody, or what is the uh, the ideal amount of sleep that we should be getting a night? Well, that's that's also an interesting uh, question because for a long time we've just assumed that. Uh, healthy sleep is a function of how many hours of sleep Uh are we getting. It turns out that we have stages of sleep, which our listeners might be aware of. They might have heard of that. REM sleep, you know, rapid eye movement sleep. And then we've got stages one, two, three, and four. Three and four being the deepest forms of sleep, restorative sleep, restful sleep that we call stages three and four. And it turns out that the most restorative way that we get sleep is less, has less to do with the absolute number of hours we sleep and more to do with the number of cycles into deep sleep that we get. It's generally considered that we need about four, on average, at least four cycles into deep sleep in the course of a night to get restorative sleep. Sometimes we can get more, sometimes we get less, but on average, about four cycles into deep sleep. Some people can get four cycles in in six hours. Other people, it takes them nine hours to get four cycles in. And so, as it turns out, then it's not just about, well, I need X number of hours. What I really need is X number of cycles into deep sleep. It turns out that if we just allow ourselves to sleep until we're rested, we would find that different people would be getting up feeling rested after having different levels, different amounts of hours of sleep. Not everybody would sleep for eight hours. Some people would sleep for six hours and be just fine. Part of the difficulty in our world is that we don't really allow for our bodies. We we don't pay that much attention to our bodies. And so, you know, one of the ways that we invite people to do this is to uh, say, well, when do you want to get up every morning? Well, I want to get up at, you know, seven o'clock. Well, uh, how how many hours of sleep are you getting? Well, I get 
um, you know, on average, I'm getting like six hours of sleep because I'm, you know, working. So, you know, this or that or whatever. I'm like, so you're telling me that you're on average not going to bed until one o'clock in the morning. They're like, well, no, I don't go to bed. I go to bed earlier than that. I said, like, so let's let's just do it this way. You 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 get six hours of sleep on average. You want to get up at seven o'clock. Here's a little experiment, and we do this with patients. Um, for the next two weeks, no matter what, I want you to get up. Make sure the first thing your day. We like to talk about sleep wake cycles, not just sleep sleep wake cycles. Your day begins when you wrap up your sleep. So your day begins at 7 o'clock. You're averaging six hours. So for the next two weeks, I want you to make sure that you do not go to bed until 1 in the morning. I don't mm, Yeah, I see the eyebrows being raised. I want you not to go to bed until 1 in the morning. And for the last three to four hours of your night, you can't do anything exertional, right, to keep you up. You The last two hours, I don't want you to be on any screens. Uh, so you're going to have to find a way to like live. And you're like, oh, okay, right. And of course, people hear this and they're just aghast. Like, what? I'm like, I'm I'm on purpose going to bed at one. Well, you're telling me you're getting six hours of sleep. You want to get up at seven? We're going to do this, and you don't get to nap during the day for the next two weeks. So Sunday, Saturday, like no napping. And of course, two weeks go by, and they're they're having a hard time getting through their day because they're exhausted. I said, like, if you can sleep for six hours for two weeks, then you get to add 15 minutes to your clock, which means then you get to go to bed at 12.45, and we'll do this for another two weeks, and then 12.30, and so forth and so on. And, of course, some people at some point refuse to pay me for their visits with me because they're, <laughs> because they're, this is, this is too torturous. They're like, I, I don't, this is not what, like, I think that your medical license should be revoked if this is what you're doing to me. But what you come to find out is that it's some, for some people, they will find, you know, I actually feel really rested. I feel really energized. Like, I go to bed at midnight, and I get up at 7, and I'm, I'm actually, okay, but they have this idea in their mind, like, i got to get eight hours, 8 hours of sleep. So they're going to bed at 10 o'clock. They're, like, waking up at certain points. They can't get back to sleep, but they still got to get up at 7, and so they don't get restful sleep because they're not in bed long. They're not asleep long enough to do that. But this practice is, is, is a fairly is a fairly reliable way that, that unless, and, and now there are some exceptions because sometimes people actually do have sleep disorders. And those, that's a whole different kettle of fish for us to talk about. Those are medical conditions that, you know, we would need to ferret out and be clear that nothing like that's going on. And there are some people for whom they have other conditions for which medication is required for them to sleep and so forth and so on. But in general, this particular practice is a way for us to get a better sense of what our body really needs. Now, here's the hard part. Um, you know, culturally, we practice being distracted, right? I'm on the internet, which right. survives now. Amazon and Google depends upon my distractibility. Right. I mean, uh, Netflix came out not too long ago and said their biggest competitor, who, what they're competing against the most is sleep. The president of Netflix said that. It's been a couple years, but yeah. Their biggest competitor is sleep? Right. I mean, that's the one thing that's stopping people from, you know, because people are just binging and you go from one to the next to the next to the next to the next. And suddenly it's two, three o'clock in the morning and they're like, oh, I got to go to sleep. So I guess I have to turn off Netflix now, you know. I mean, it's that's the point like, now where that's you like, watch it, you notice how fast they have it now. Like if you're watching a show... You're done watching it, and the next episode has started already before you even you've even can you reach for the remote because they got to get your attention again. They got to get right. your eyes on, keep your eyes on the screen. Right. This is like this is like J.R. Reynolds saying our biggest competitor is the American Cancer Institute. Right. <laughs> I mean, come on. Yeah. So we want neuroplastic change. In order for that to happen, I, you know, all these things that we, these, you know, these uh, eight and, and growing list of things that we can do to enhance this neuroplasticity, um, we're like, oh, this is really great. Sleep, that's good. Better diet, I want that. Exercise, like, none of these things would we say, oh, gosh, I don't want, I don't, I don't want to have good relationships. Right. You know? We would say that we want all these things except that we live in a world 
that for the most part actively undermines our capacity to do these things. So for many of us who are listening to this, you're going to hear this list of eight things and they're thinking, great, I'm depressed and anxious, but now I got to find time to exercise, but I got to meditate and I got to take 30 freaking minutes to eat my lunch when I don't have time to do this. And I got to read deeply and I got to get sleep and, you know, I got to somehow like think that the whole thing's pretty funny. (laughs) (laughs) Got to keep my sense of humor about it all. Got to keep my sense of humor about the whole thing. And, 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 and so like we want these things, but I, th- you know, any of these things that we talk about, Pep, when, when we talk about beauty, when we talk about being known, um, toward the end of Genesis chapter three, where God in conversation with the first couple starts to name what their actions are delivering upon the earth when he pronounces how the earth will be cursed because of their choices. We are reminded that we live in a world in which evil intends to devour us. Evil has no intention for any of us to take any of these eight things seriously. Because if we do, in that day, evil knows that its days are numbered. We can't ever separate this work of neuroplastic change, the transformation and renewal of our minds. We can't ever take that for granted and just say, hey, this is a really great thing without reminding ourselves of the anthropology of what it means to be human, reminding ourselves of what the story is in which we believe that we're living, that we are pushing against principalities and powers whose intention is to devour us. And when we just look around at our world, we can say, yeah, all these things are great for us to do, except we live in a world, the cumulative actions of which are constantly pushing a tidal wave against them. Which is why it's so important, as we like to say, look, the brain can do a lot of really hard things as long as it doesn't have to be by itself in the process. And so we always get back to this question of if we're going to do this work of neuroplastic change, the transformation of our minds, who will be the people by whom we will be known that will enable us to do this effectively? Who will be the people who will be my encouragers when I don't want to go to bed, when I don't want to go for the walk, when I don't want to read deeply, when I don't want to make my confession? Who will be the people who will come to find me? Who will be the people who will help me to undo my shame about the fact that I haven't gotten off the couch in six months? All of these things that we're doing, talking about neuroplastic change, talking about transformation of our minds and the renewal of our brains in the process, are all taking place in this larger gospel story, this larger narrative in which we believe that in Jesus, this renewal isn't just metaphoric, but it's something that we are doing as a practice for what's coming in the new heaven and the new earth. And as I tell people, look, if we're not practicing for heaven, there's a pretty good chance that it will crush us when it gets here. Far from being that easy place of nirvana that we would love to be at, a place where all cares are just swept away, it is much more likely that it's going to be a place in which the beauty and the demand of reality is going to be so great that if our brains are not getting ready for it, we won't know what to do with it when it gets here. And so in this way, neuroplasticity is not just an interesting topic of neuroscientific discovery. It's something that our very lives in the new heaven and the new earth will depend upon. Thanks be to God. Wow. This has been great, Kurt. I, you know, you've given us um, just some great knowledge to think about. You've given us some practices to put in place. Um, 
I appreciate you so much. Hmm. Appreciate the work that you do. My hippocampus appreciates you. <laughs> you know, I, I, Pep, I was going to say, I, I was going to say, like, I, I, I think I've watched your head expand while it, we have been having this conversation. It That's, has. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I've often said to people that you are the most beautiful man in the world, and now uh-huh. there's just so much more of you. There is so much more of me. So beauty yeah. is filling your screen that I'm looking at. Okay, Kurt. Until next time. Right on, brother. Love you. You too. This podcast is produced by Kurt Thompson, Pepper Sweeney, and myself, Amy Chella. Audio production and music is provided by Noah Needleman. If you'd like to connect with us, you can find us on our website, beingknownpodcast.com, or you can find us on social media at beingknownpod. Be well and be known.